welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on Matthew chapter 21. What was Yeshua doing when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey? Why was that moment so important? What were the people shouting? Why were they spreading their clothes on the road before him as he rode in? Why did Yeshua drive out the money changers and merchants from the temple? Was Messiah cursing all Israel when he cursed the fruitless fig tree? And by what authority did he do those things? When he told the angry religious leaders that the kingdom of Elohim would be taken away and given to a nation bringing forth its fruit, was he telling them that God was done with Israel and the kingdom of Elohim was now the Christian church of the Gentile nations? If not, what was he really saying? Could it be that as the rightful king of God's kingdom of Israel, He was pronouncing judgment on those who were wicked among the people of Israel, like the king of Israel is supposed to do? And who rejected Messiah as the rightful king of Israel? Was it all the people of Israel or some of the people of Israel? Would a just, righteous, loving, and kind God, who keeps his promises through all generations, reject the righteous in Israel, for the deeds of the wicked in Israel. Stay tuned through to the end of this program for Eliyahu ben David's insight on these questions and more in Matthew chapter 21. And now, here's today's first scripture portion. Matthew chapter 21, verse 1 through verse 22. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, on the Mount of Olives, Then Yeshua sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village that is opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, Adonai needs them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes to you, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Yeshua commanded them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The multitudes who went before him and who followed kept shouting, Hoshiana to the son of David! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. Hoshiana in the highest. When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The multitudes said, This is the prophet, Yeshua, from Nazareth of Galilee. Yeshua entered into the temple of Elohim and drove out all of those who sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the money changers' tables and the seats of those who sold the doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children who were crying in the temple and saying, Hoshiana to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Yeshua said to them, Yes, did you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing babies you have perfected praise. He left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. He said to it, Let there be no fruit from you forever. Immediately the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree immediately wither away? Yeshua answered them, Most certainly I tell you, if you have faith and don't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you told this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it would be done. All things, whatever you ask, in prayer, believing you will receive. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David on that portion. Welcome, brothers and sisters. The king has come. And what a happy thing, you know. This happened almost 2,000 years ago, and in between, nothing has happened to change it. The king has come. This is going to figure into our discussion more as we continue along tonight, looking at this amazing incident that happened in Matthew 21, at the things that happened when Messiah came to present himself as king. We have a scripture presentation about these verses. This is Matthew 21, 1 through 22. And I think as we look at this in Matthew 21, it doesn't hurt to think back on what we've seen happen in Matthew. Because at the beginning, we find out who Yeshua actually is, that he really is the Son of God, that he actually was announced by an angel, was born, yes, of a virgin birth. And he has the pedigree of a king. All of the kings of Judah in the Davidic line, they're all part of his line, and he's part of their line. He is the rightful king of Israel. 
We see him announced by the forerunner. We see him tempted by the devil after he's sent out in his ministry. He's immersed by Yohanan. He's accepted by Yahweh from heaven. And then he is set off to be tempted where he just dramatically defeats the devil at every turn. He sets out on his ministry, and the multitudes follow him. He teaches them about the good news of the kingdom. He heals everybody that comes. He casts out demons. He selects leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, who is he to do that? The Messiah. He's the Messiah. So he can select the leaders. In fact, what he was actually doing is he was building his kingdom government. That's what he was doing. So it's not surprising when the time finally comes where he has tried to prepare them. He's told them, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and, oh, the power structure in Jerusalem is going to kill me. They didn't quite get that. He got that. He knew what was going to happen. Nevertheless, he stepped forward as the king of Israel. This is what we saw tonight. And as Matthew 21, 4 and 5 says, all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king comes to you, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is prophesied that this is how the king would come to Israel. This was the king coming to Israel. Zechariah 9 is quoted here, and that's fulfilled by Yeshua. And we notice that the people accepted him. Now we're talking about the common people. Now think about these people and what had been happening. Multitudes of people healed, had demons cast out, heard the good news of the kingdom, saw miracles, heard about miracles from other people. This is just such a huge thing that happened. The things that people saw him do. People were touched. Their lives were touched. But who was it that was touched? It was the poor people, the common people, the wealthy people. They looked down on him because they looked down on them, right? They were better than the common people. That was their thinking. But these multitudes of the common people, the poor people, the oppressed people, they went before him and they shouted, Hoshiana to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. Well, what were they really saying here? They were shouting, please deliver us or save us to the son of David. This was an exclamation to the Messiah to come and save them. Now, what were they wanting to be saved from? Probably Rome. 
but they recognized Messiah. Hoshiana is a prayer addressed to the Messiah in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. If you read it, it's full of prophecy about the Messiah. This was part of that prophecy being fulfilled. So the people received him as the king, the common people. They recognized and honored Yeshua as the king. He presented himself as the king. The people recognized him as the king. Has anything ever happened to change that? He's the king. He is the king of Israel. Nothing has happened to change that. And what did he do after he presented himself to the people as the king? He immediately began exercising his kingly authority. And the first thing he did was go to the temple and clean it out. Isn't this what a king of Israel ought to do? The temple is full of corruption. The first thing he did is went to the temple to clean it out. And then he began healing people in the temple. Exactly perfect, isn't it? You know what's going to happen when Messiah comes? He's going to clean out the temple. He's going to clean out the world. And he's going to heal those who are left of the nations. And then he followed this up by cursing the fig tree. Well, what was he really doing when he was cleansing the temple? Here's a little picture I found. And this is the caption, Modern Interpretation of Christ Driving the Money Changers from the Temple. Oh, those guys in the suits and ties. Yeah. What is this about? See the circle? Religion, money, and politics. This is, friends, the world system. When we find the Gospels talking about Yeshua facing the scribes and Pharisees, he is dealing directly with the religion part of that. But, you know, you need to understand there's a bigger picture here. And Messiah was totally aware of that picture. Let's take the temple, for example, okay? The temple was a major attraction in the Roman Empire. It was a wonder of that world. It was Roman law for every Jew throughout the Roman Empire, and there were Jews in every city. It was Roman law that they had to pay the temple tax. And they had to go up to the temple at least once a year to pay that tax. Was this good for Rome? Well, every time these Jews had to travel, what happened? Money went into commerce right? Money went into the coffers as they moved through the system. And then when they got to the temple, 
Well, they couldn't just use the money they had. The money had to be exchanged at the temple to the kind of money that the temple would accept. So there were money changers there who charged exorbitant fees in order to change the money to the temple coins. There were millions of people who came every single year in this system who were all being built by this system. And it was a conspiracy between the religious elite who ran the whole temple complex and the religion, the money changers, and outward from there. Now, when we're saying money changers, here bankers, because there was such a huge amount of money that came through, these were the guys then that you had to go to to get a loan. So these are like the moneyed elite of this day, like the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, who can control governments throughout the empire with their wealth. And then, of course, you have the religious system. And what is their function as part of this system? Why, their function is to pacify the people, isn't it? To use religion, to keep the people under control, and to keep this whole system running. That is how it worked in the first century. That's how it works now. That's how it has always worked. And so this is what Yeshua was stepping up against. It wasn't just these religious leaders who happened to be the mouthpiece within that system for the system as a whole. He was facing them, but he was really facing that whole system. And you can see that when he went after these money changers who were really driving the system, what it was all about. Have you heard of the Temple of Herod? This temple we're talking about was called the Temple of Herod. Before it was called the Temple of Herod, it was called the Temple of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a godly man in the family of David. And after the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in due time, Yahweh sent him back to rebuild the temple. And the temple was rather modest compared to the earlier temple of Solomon. So, in the period just before the coming of Messiah, when all of this system was gearing up, having to do with the temple, and all this money throughout the whole Roman system, there was pressure to make this system more efficient. So King Herod, who was actually an Edomite, as were a lot of the religious leaders, they got behind the idea of a rebuild of the temple. Well, they didn't rebuild what Zerubbabel had done, but they built this huge, gigantic plaza. It involved building these huge retaining walls, 
bring in lots of dirt, leveling it all out, building this huge plaza. I mean, this would make the biggest mall look small by comparison. Why did Herod do that? Do you think he did that because he was such a spiritual guy? He wanted all these people to come to Jerusalem to pray and to know Yahweh? No. No. He murdered his own family. He did it because it made him great. It turned that temple into the biggest attraction in the Roman Empire. Made all this room for all these people to come and pay their temple tax to bring in all of this money. And a good part of it went to Herod and his system. They all got their cut. Religion got their cut. The king got his cut. The money changers got their cut. The Romans got their cut. And the people got their cut. They got cut to pieces by this system. In many cases, they had to end up selling their homes, selling everything they had, just to try to keep up with feeding this monster. Yeshua faced all of that. He was unafraid of that system, and he condemned it by what he did. He didn't just think, oh, some of those people are bad. He saw the whole system was rotten, and he opposed it. Well, this brings us to the cursing of the fig tree. You'll be shocked if you spend some time reading various Christian commentaries about these verses of cursing the fig tree to find how many of them will tell you that when Messiah cursed the fig tree, he was cursing Israel. They really say that. For example, in the Schofield reference notes that go along with the Schofield Bible, it says, the withered fig tree is a parabolic miracle concerning Israel. It doesn't differentiate there to the righteous and the wicked. No, it's just Israel. Israel is this fig tree cursed by Messiah. That's what they say. But what does the fig tree and the fig fruit really represent in the Scriptures? You know, bringing us back to the prophets, to the Scriptures, and we could see all these different references there that fed into what Messiah was saying, that were part of the language of that culture. Well, this is also true about figs. You know, in Jeremiah 24, we have a story about two kinds of figs, two baskets of figs. And it says there, one basket was very good figs, and the other basket was very bad figs. In fact, they were so bad, they couldn't be eaten. And... 
It tells us there about the good figs, essentially that they were the righteous remnant, and that Yahweh would treat them well. He says, I will give them a heart to know me. They shall be my people, and I will be their Elohim, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So it's prophesied there would be a righteous remnant, like the good figs. So when Yeshua is cursing the fig tree, do you think he's cursing this righteous remnant who are the good figs? Doesn't make sense, does it? But then we have the bad figs, which can't be eaten. These are the disobedient ones. These are the elite friends. They are so bad. I will even give them up to be tossed back and forth among all the kingdoms of the earth for evil, to be a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them. I will send the sword, the famine, the pestilence among them until they be consumed from off the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. So, these are the bad figs. Could that tree picture these guys? Very clearly. If I knew about this prophecy, I was one of those disciples, I saw him curse that fig tree, this is what I'd think about. Especially in view of the fact that he had just faced down these people. So, Paul talks about the remnant, like the good figs. He says, Elohim didn't reject his people Israel, which he foreknew. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Why do the Christians constantly ignore the remnant? Why do they always pretend there was no righteous remnant and all of Israel was wicked and needed to be destroyed? And they continue to do this even though all of the apostles were Israelites. All of the early believers in the beginning were Israelites. And as a matter of fact, on Pentecost Day, when they began to share the message of the kingdom, 3,000 Israelites joined on the very first day. And then it kept growing and growing and growing. Are all these people cursed too? We need to get with our history, friends. And if you find out what the truth is about history, you're going to find out there were no Christians until the second century. There was the remnant of Israel and those who joined themselves to them. That's what there was in the first century. That's the truth. And the Christian church is a later offshoot, a heresy, away from that true group. So we've got the bad figs analogous to the withered tree the wicked leaders, and those who continued to follow them. They were, in fact, cursed, as history shows. Everything we read there in Jeremiah happened to these people. Within decades, their entire wicked regime was utterly destroyed, 
and those who survived were scattered off the land. This is what happened. This is history. So why did that happen? It happened because of the kings. They rejected the king, and therefore they were rejected. That's what happened. But there was a righteous remnant of Israel that carried on true Israel. And we need to never forget that. Well, what about us? Well, that same triad of evil that we looked at earlier continues on in a different form today. Religion, money, and politics all working together to benefit a global elite, constantly deceiving the people, constantly bilking the people, constantly oppressing the people. And I'll tell you the truth, Messiah doesn't like that any better than he liked what happened in the first century. And he is coming back because the king has come, the king is coming again. And when he does, he's going to finish this thing. He's going to finish those people who oppose him, who oppose righteousness. He is going to establish justice, righteousness, and truth in the earth. We will have a king who is righteous, who is good, and who does the will of the Father. Yes, friends, the king has come. You are listening to Hebraic Insights from Eliyahu ben David on Matthew chapter 21. Other scriptures referenced in this program are Psalm 118, Jeremiah chapter 24, and Romans chapter 11. Don't go away. Hebraic Insights in the Gospels will be right back after this. Would you like to hear more of Eliyahu's teachings? Do you have a question or prayer request and would like to get in touch with one of our volunteers for help? Or do you just want to know more about Eliyahu ben David and Zion Ministry? Visit our website at zion.org where you can listen to more teachings from Eliyahu ben David straight from the homepage of our website. Check out our books, DVDs, internet videos, and other social media outlets. Learn more about Eliyahu and the Zion team on the About page. See what our ministry's mission is on the Remnant Vision page. Send a question or prayer request from our Contact Us page. 
Or click join us in the menu bar to learn about our community site, Zion Tabernacle. To find out more about Zion Ministry, go to zion.org. That's zion.org, spelled T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. Welcome back. Here's the next scripture portion. Matthew chapter 21, verse 23 through verse 46. When he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Yeshua answered them, I also will ask you one question which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The immersion of John. Where was it from? From heaven or from men? They reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will ask us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all hold John as a prophet. They answered Yeshua and said, We don't know. He said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. He came to the second and said the same thing. He answered, I go, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said to him, The first. Yeshua said to them, Most certainly I tell you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of Elohim before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. When you saw it, You didn't even repent afterward that you might believe him. Hear another parable. There was a man who was a master of a household, who planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it out to farmers, and went into another country. When the season for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the farmers to receive his fruit. The farmers took his servants beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they treated them the same way. But afterward, he sent to them his son, saying, They will respect my son. But the farmers, when they saw the son, said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? They told him, 
He will miserably destroy those miserable men and will lease out the vineyard to other farmers who will give him the fruit in its season. Yeshua said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner. This was from Adonai. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of Elohim will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation bringing forth its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it will fall, it will scatter him as dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he spoke about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the multitudes, because they considered him to be a prophet. And now, here's Eliyahu ben David with more insight in Matthew chapter 21. I think we're at a very dramatic point in the book of Matthew. What we were seeing is things stepping up as Yeshua came into Jerusalem as the king. And we see a clash of authority. We're going to see more of that in tonight's lesson in Matthew chapter 21. And our general theme is, by what authority? Which is their question for the things that he is doing and saying in Matthew 21. And this whole chapter actually turns on the issue of authority. That's really what it's all about, is authority. When Yeshua Messiah came riding into Jerusalem... As king, he was proclaiming that he had the authority of the Father. When the chief priests and Pharisees approached him in the temple, asking him, by what authority do you do these things? They are essentially saying, we are the authorities here, and we never told you you could do this. So, we have a clash who really is the authority figure here and who really is in charge. Well, we want to look a little bit more at that issue, but I specifically want to also point out another question that I think is really important. This being from Matthew 21, 42 through 44. Here, Yeshua says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of Elohim will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation bringing forth its fruit. What does that verse mean? The Believer's Bible Commentary says it means this. Israel has been set aside as God's chosen people. The prophecy that the kingdom of God would be given to a nation bearing the fruit of it has been understood as referring to the church. And you find this over and over again. This is the standard belief that you find among most Christian churches. This is a proof text they use to support what we call replacement theology. This is the teaching that 
Israel has been replaced by a Gentile entity called the church. And this is taken for granted by many, many Christians. And what is the outcome of this? I mean, why is this important? Well, one outcome of this is the problem in Bible prophecy. Because many of these same Bible commentators, when they get to the book of Revelation, realize that it's talking about Israel in the book of Revelation. And why then is there like two groups that are God's chosen people, the church and Israel? And it's really on the basis of this conundrum that they came up with the idea of the pre-tribulation rapture that the church is raptured out first so that then Israel can be God's people again. And it's kind of a convoluted kind of thinking. So it's an important question, and really it's highly based on this particular verse. And we're going to look at this a little bit more closely tonight and see exactly what Yeshua was saying. And if he really was saying, that God had set aside Israel, or was about to, and was going to choose a different nation. Let's look into that now. Matthew 21, 23, when he had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching. I think it's interesting that they came to him. Don't you think that's interesting? And they said, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you this authority? Well, he pulled out his license that he got down at City Hall that said they had authority. Not. Isn't that the mentality people have about authority? Show me your badge. Show me maybe uh, your doctorate degree right? Show me the group that signed on down at the bottom of the form that says you're this, you're that, you're the other thing. Show me that you were elected by the people. Show me that you were appointed by the president. Show me something that has a signature on it, something that's a document that shows who you are. Well, surprisingly, Yeshua had a document like that. And we call it the Scriptures. All through the Scriptures, it talks about the coming of Messiah. It tells you all the stuff that he was going to do that he actually did. Yeah, I'm telling you, there is no authority in the world that is better documented than Yeshua Messiah, but not from this world. And that's why they didn't recognize it. His documentation comes from the Father. And that is certainly good enough. Well, we've been talking a lot about this parable that he shared. And basically, what it's telling us is there was an owner of a vineyard. 
And he leased out the vineyard to certain farmers, made a deal with them. The whole idea was they were going to produce fruit for him. And when it was time for him to collect, they didn't want to give the fruit over to him. Why? Because they were wanting to suck everything they could out of that field, out of that vineyard for themselves. And they didn't want to give him anything. So we have the story here of what happened, how he sent his servants to them. They beat and killed his servants. Then he sent his son to them, thinking, well, they certainly wouldn't treat my son like that. And of course they did, didn't they? In fact, they thought, this is our special opportunity, because this really belongs to the son. We kill him, we'll get it. So that's what they did. And then after laying out this whole parable, Yeshua says, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Well, let's talk about the parable. In this parable, who is the owner of the vineyard? It's the Father in heaven, right? And what is the vineyard? The vineyard has to be Israel, with whom the Father has a covenant, so that certain fruit is owed to him through the covenant, right? Who are the farmers? Why, these are the leaders of the nation. These are the ones who care for the nation, whose responsibility it is to produce good fruit from the nation for Yahweh under the covenant. None of this is rocket science, is it? Who are the servants that were sent? The prophets, teachers, scribes, priests, many different righteous men who spoke the truth fearlessly, many of whom ended up being abused and even killed because they were opposing an evil authority in the nation. And then finally, the father sent his son. Who is the son? You know, it's interesting. They had asked, by what authority do you do these things? And he had said, I'm not going to tell you, but now he's telling them, isn't he? Now he's telling them. Yes, the father sent him. That's by what authority. The father sent him to collect what was his. One other thing, at the end of this story, what changes? The vineyard or the farmers? Let's move on and then we'll get an answer to that. Here's the answer they gave him to what the vineyard owner would do. 
They told him he will miserably destroy those miserable men and will lease out the vineyard to other farmers who will give him the fruit in its season. Imagine that. Out of their own mouths, they spoke forth their own sentence against themselves. Isn't that amazing (laughs) that they did that? Because this is exactly what happened. It wasn't that long. Less than 40 years from the date they spoke this. The Romans came and destroyed that whole evil system. And the leaders of that system along with it. That is not an accident of history. That is the justice of God. And then it says, though, he will lease out the vineyard to other farmers. You mean the vineyard wasn't destroyed? Did you see anything in this parable about the vineyard owner destroying his own vineyard? Does that make sense to you? That the vineyard owner is going to destroy the vineyard because of these evil men? That'd be stupid. Wouldn't it? That's not what the parable says at all. It says that the evil farmers would be destroyed, but that the vineyard would be leased out to other farmers. The vineyard owner continued to expect fruit from the vineyard. If those guys weren't going to do it, he'd put people in who would. How easy is that? Do you see anything here about? Yahweh setting aside Israel? Was Messiah saying that? Don't you think it's pretty awful that teachers of the Scriptures put words into Messiah's mouth that weren't there, saying that he said something he didn't say? He clearly wasn't saying that Israel was being set aside. In fact, he said the vineyard, which is Israel, would be leased out to other farmers. He said Israel was going to continue. Isn't that what it says? I do not have PhD after my name, but you know what? I can read, and so can you. Well, then, this is what Yeshua said to them. Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same was made the head of the corner. This was from Adonai. It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of Elohim will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation bringing forth its fruit. In context, who is he talking to? Is he talking to the whole nation of Israel? Isn't he still talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees? In other words, the leaders. Isn't that who he's talking to? So when he says it's going to be taken from you, isn't he talking to the leaders? Isn't that who he's talking to? 
But he continues, he who falls in this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it will fall, it will scatter him as dust. These verses that he's quoting are from Psalm 118. And I think you'll recognize them. For instance, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Verse 23, this is Yahweh's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 24, this is the day that Yahweh has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. A special day, you see, when Messiah would come. And then finally, save us now, we beg you, Yahweh. Yahweh, we beg you, send prosperity now. Verse 25, that's exactly what the people were saying, right? Hosanna, when he came as king into the city. He's quoting to the chief priests and the Pharisees from exactly the same verses that the people themselves had been saying as he came into the city. They understood what was happening. The people understood what was happening. But the leaders didn't get it. They didn't get it. And it's true. They really didn't want to get it. Because it was a threat to their authority. And it was prophesied here in Scripture that that's how it would be. They considered themselves the builders of the nation. And here they rejected the stone upon which the whole nation was to be built, the Messiah. They rejected him. Just like the psalm foretold would happen. There's nothing in this psalm either about the nation being destroyed. There is here it does talk about what would happen with that stone. Messiah said what would happen with that stone. Basically, those that would receive him would be blessed, and those who opposed him would be scattered like dust, which is what happened. In other words, what that is foretelling is a separation in the nation. There would be those that would oppose him they would be scattered as dust. There would be those who would receive him, and they would be blessed. This is what happened. This is what happened in the first century. Israel was not set aside. Only the wicked among Israel were set aside, and rightly so. Well, let's look at this verse a little more closely. And it says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom, that is the government, this Greek word that is kingdom can simply mean government of Elohim, will be taken away from you and will be given to a multitude bringing forth its fruit. This word that is generally translated as nation means more basically just a multitude, a group. So in this case, it really seems to be referring to the group of leaders over Israel, not the nation of Israel itself, but the group of leaders, because 
that's who he's talking to. He's saying that the government was going to be taken from them and given to somebody else. The old leaders over Israel would be replaced with better leaders. And you know what? That's what he did. He replaced those old leaders of Israel. He gave them a new leader. The leader was James in the family of Yeshua Messiah. And the apostles. And then many others were appointed throughout the various congregations of believers. A multitude of leaders, righteous leaders, who belonged to Yeshua Messiah and who followed him, who kept the Torah, who kept the scriptures, who loved the brothers and sisters. What Messiah said is exactly what he did. He replaced those leaders. And you know what? That is promise for the last days. All of this, the same thing. It's being played out all over again. And you know, another thing that gets me, when the Christian commentators say that the kingdom would be taken away from Israel and given to a nation bringing forth its fruit, they're assuming that the Christian church has a better record than Israel, that they've brought forth more fruit than Israel. I dispute that. You know, the Catholic Church alone is said to be responsible for the deaths of at least 50 million martyrs. What about all the rest of it? All the other wars between the sects of Christendom. There's a lot of really terrible, rotten fruit connected with the Christian church that ought to be just as rejected as the rotten fruit of these leaders of Messiah's day. Rotten is rotten, friends. Not to say there aren't good leaders too, but you know what? There were in Israel as well. So, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of presumptuous to say that the Christian church system has produced better fruit than Israel. I don't, I don't see it myself. I don't see that. That's not the story of history. Now, if we look at individuals, yeah, there are individual Christians that have produced good fruit. But back before Messiah ever even came, can't we look in the Bible at Israelites who produced good fruit in their life? And even in the first century, as we go through the gospel, don't we meet various Israelites in the gospel record who were bringing forth good fruit in their life? You know, the whole thing really does come down to a personal thing, doesn't it? It really does. It's, what are you going to do about Messiah? That's really the thing. Are you going to recognize him as the stone on which the whole nation is to be built? His nation. Remnant Israel, that nation. That's really the key thing. And 
What does that mean to recognize him as that? Doesn't it mean to change your life? Doesn't it mean to bring forth fruit for the kingdom, to conform yourself to kingdom principles, to the kingdom way of doing things, to even kingdom authority? Doesn't it involve all of that? We have a big challenge here in these last days because, you know, a lot of us come from the Christian church. A lot of us come from other groups. And pretty much all of those people are spiritually lazy. Am I wrong? Again, there are exceptions. But that is the culture, pretty much. You know, things are very surface. Not too many dig very deep to really understand the truth of things. We have to get past that. You know, we have to invest ourselves in the truth. We have to invest ourselves in Yeshua Messiah like this to say, what was he really saying? What does it mean to me? What does it mean in my life? You know, this is what the impact of this message really needs to be. This is why we do Zion Academy and all the things we do. We need this. We need this. It's not optional. We need it. We need it to feed our spirit. How can we live in this world with so many bad influences in the world, so many pressures on us by a false authority, so many deceptions constantly coming at us. How can we possibly get through that to the end of this age without fixing our mind on Him and on His truth and renewing our minds continually with His truth? You know, this is what is called upon for remnant Israel here in these last days. I believe these words were not just talking about the first century, a nation producing its fruit, but are projecting on to our time. And I believe that this is a challenge for us to rise up to here in these last days. Well, here's the kicker to this message. After he said this, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke about them. Not the nation. Not saying the whole nation was going to be cast off. They understood that he was talking about them. Shouldn't that be good enough for us? Messiah never said that God was casting off Israel. And he never did, and he never will. You have been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. 
Further teachings and study materials on various related topics and others can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. Or click the membership link on the Zion Road website. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Join us next Shabbat to learn more in the book of Matthew. Shabbat Shalom! Ask for the ancient